In the Middle Ages, royalty and the aristocracy celebrated the 12 days of Christmas in festive style. The Croyland Chronicle describes Edward IV's 1482 Christmas at Eltham Palace. There were 2,000 guests, and the food supplied for the 12 days of Christmas were as follows. 1,000 sheep, 2,000 swans, 6 bulls, 400 peacocks, 4,000 bitterns, 4,000 dishes of jelly, 1,000 cold venison pastries, 300 calves, 1,000 geese, 1,200 plovers, 200 cranes, 200 herons, 2,000 hot custards, 15,000 hot venison pastries, 800 pigs, 2,000 male chickens, 2,400 quails, 2,000 young goats, 1,000 curlews, 12 porpoises and seals, and plenty of spices, sugar delicacies, and wafers. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. Now that sounds like a hell of a Christmas party. And I sure would love to uh, travel back in time and witness such an extravagant feast. So we're going to have some pretty incredible English Christmas music on this episode. It's performed by Ernst Stoltz. And his YouTube channel is My Years with Early Music. So it's going to be a bunch of uh, English folk music, English Christmas carols, and the likes. So this is the Christmas special. We're taking a little break from the Scandinavian series as the microphone travels from one guest to the other, from Sweden to Norway. And in the interim, here is the Christmas special. This one is not going to have the normal long-form uh conversation, interview. Instead, this one is going to be a Christmas reading. There will be an interview, however. So I reached out to one of my mom's best friends. She's from England, and she is going for about 15 minutes in the intro. We're going to give her a little call, and she's going to talk about some Christmas customs in England, including how to make a plum pudding, which is a very historical dish that goes back 500 years. And uh, then we're going to get into the real meat of this episode, which is a reading of a very haunting Christmas story, Gawain and the Green Knight. Now, in reflection of doing this podcast for a number of years now, one of the most long-lasting lessons I've learned was on an episode with a man named Sonny Ledford, 
uh, two summers ago, and he was a Cherokee cultural ambassador down in North Carolina. And he does a lot of work with the living history museums there, talking a lot about Cherokee culture in Appalachia. And um, God, that was such a profound episode. And my major takeaway was that um, I had such reverence for the intensity with which he talked about uh, his ancestors and the culture of his ancestors and still today, the culture of his people. And I thought, well, if that, if I feel this way towards Sonny, then, then this must mean something about myself as well, that shouldn't I be paying attention to the old culture of my family from Europe? So my mom is from Belgium, my dad and my entire dad's side lives in England. And uh, so I thought, well, for this one, why don't we focus it on Christmas in England. So that's the theme, is the English feast. So to everyone who has been loyally listening this year, to everyone who's been pitching in on Patreon to keep this thing going, I want to just say a huge thank you. Thank you for supporting this project. I looked at some of the statistics over this year and where I host the podcast on Buzzsprout, we are in the top 5% of podcasts. Kind of blows me away. But uh, thank you guys. And um, let's get right to it. Let's give Fran a call and hear what it's, what's going on in the English kitchen. I was born in Dublin um, and we lived in Dublin till I was about uh, just five. And then, uh, then we, we moved to England um, because my my dad's family's Irish, but my mum's family's English, so that's you know. But they were living in Dublin at the time we were born, and um, so yeah. Then I grew up in the southeast in Kent, which is a county that's south of London. It's between London and the Channel ports, essentially. Um, so it, uh, that's that's where I grew up, um, and so yeah, very very typical southeast England, you know. <laughs> So I actually, through looking at my dad's genealogy, we have so many ancestors from late 1600s to, to mid 1800s that were from Kent. Were you really? Yeah. So were, is it, were you coastal? Were you on the water? No, I, I was in land, a, a, a town called Seven Oaks. It's about 25 miles south of London and it, it's at the West End. It's almost into Surrey. So it's, it's, it's. It's uh, not by the coast, but my my dad, um, although his his lineage is Irish, he actually grew up in Kent on the on the North Kent coast, in a, in a town called Whitstable, which is just north of Canterbury, just on the coast there. That's where he grew up, so he obviously knew the area well. Well, Canterbury Tales is going to be the next thing I read, so. Canterbury Tales, yes, that's that's lots of fun. Yes, yeah. Well, the yeah, the Pilgrim's Way, which is an old um, track. I mean, it's it's marked on all you know the lot of um, footpaths and things that are marked in, in the English maps. And the Pilgrim's Way goes just north of Seven Oaks, where I grew up, and then it goes down to um, to Canterbury. But it, it's an, a well known. Would you see pilgrims? Not anymore, no, no, because nobody, <laughs> nobody does that sort of thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, please, let's hear about a typical English 
Christmas? A typical English Christmas dinner is um, we we typically have turkey. It's very kind of like you you have at Thanksgiving. That would be a very typical Christmas dinner for us with the turkey because um, we don't obviously have any equivalent of Thanksgiving. And um, then so that's all all made up. And then everybody wears a paper hat. You get a, a Christmas cracker, which are a are paper um, cylinders and they contain a joke, a hat and a little trinket of some description. And then so everybody pulls them between and, and you get you take out your hat and the jokes are usually dreadful puns and uh, the trinkets are useless. But so everybody wears a little paper hat. So if you ever watch anything on TV that's setting Christmas in England, you'll everybody will be wearing a silly little paper hat. So that's that explains that. And then um, for dessert, we have Christmas pudding, which is nothing like what Americans think of as pudding, which so just forget, just think of it as dessert. Pudding is a generic term for dessert over there. And it's made well ahead of time. It's made mostly of dried fruits, um, prunes and um, raisins, currants, and you you stir it all up with um, f flour and eggs and um, suet. And now, typically, uh, traditionally, this would be real beef suet. But you know, in, as we get more health health conscious, you can buy um, vegetarian suet equivalent, which uh, works quite well. And uh, mixed spice. So you can walk into a supermarket in England and buy a jar of something called mixed spice and it it plays the same role as pumpkin spice does over here but it tastes completely different so over here I have to make my mixed spice so I go online and, and look at various recipes and, and I really just um, tweak it until it tastes as I remember the mixed spice taking but it's 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 cloves and nutmeg and you know various other spices but much less cinnamon than the 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 the, 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 the pumpkin spice is way too much cinnamon but anyway so there's so mixed spices and then the other thing that goes in is candied peel and again if you if you look in the American supermarkets you you see this sort of the colours are like the colours of a of a traffic light, you know, reds and yellows and greens, and it's nothing like that. <laughs> so I tend to make my own mixed peel, you know, taking orange and lemon peel and and uh, crystallising it, you know, candying it, and and then you chop it up fine, and then there's always booze in it, so Guinness typically or something like that, and. Uh, so that's pretty much the contents. And then there's a great ceremony around it. You you typically make it sometime in November, uh, late October, early November, and everybody and, and you everybody has a wish. So you stir it all up, all that, you know, getting getting it ready. And then everybody stirs the pudding and makes a wish. And then traditionally in back in the day, when when the silver when coins were really worth silver, the little sixpences and threepences were, were really worth you would put a few coins in the pudding and then you know the lucky child who got the coin would be would be very happy but now that the the, the coins are not silver anymore that's not considered safe so we don't do that anymore and uh then you cook it you you steam it for many many hours and it doesn't matter you can't over overdo it 
Well, wait a second here. So for for two months, you just have it in the fridge, just kind of absorbing? No, 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 no. You cook it right away. You So after you finish mixing it, then you steam it. You steam it ahead, but you way said ahead of time. It, you do it in October or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yes, because so you... you um, you, you and then it, you put it in a, you make however many that you're making when my mum used to do it she would she would do quite a lot because it was the sort of thing she would give to uh you know older relatives who who didn't cook the way they used to when they were younger and and she used to send one to our, our some of our relatives in Ireland along with other christmas goodies so they got a christmas pudding um but yeah you steam it for many hours you can't and then after four or five hours is probably about right. And then and then you you, you let it cool down. And then you, it's in a pudding basin, a, a sort of like a, a glass bowl. And then you cover it in in parchment and wrap it all in foil. And you just store it. But one of the things you do is while while you're waiting for Christmas is you feed it with brandy. Well, you don't have to, but this and so you every week or so you go and you sort of poke holes in it and 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 just pour a bit of it just to feed the pudding. And then when Christmas Day comes, you 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 steam it some more, another couple of hours, just to make sure it's really hot. You can't overdo it, and the longer you steam it for, the blacker it gets. And and then. Um, so traditionally, if it's the blacker it is, the better the pudding is. That's the thing. And then, so then when you come to, um, to serve it, you, you, uh, you get a, a little sprig of holly. So you, so you take it out, you turn it out onto a plate. And so it's this sort of dome shaped thing and it's hopefully lovely and black. And you stick a piece of holly in the top and then you get brandy and pour brandy over it and set it alight, right? And you turn all the lights out and then you come walking in with this this flaming pudding and um, you, you you put it down on the table. And, and then traditionally you serve it with brandy butter, which is is butter and sugar uh, that you you um, you stir it up. You stir it up together till it's light and fluffy and then you add brandy to it. So, so it's all very boozy. Very or Chris, Christmas in 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 England is always very boozy. It's the only thing that kept us warm, I think. And uh, so, so yeah. But now, but the other thing is that, um, and I used I, I haven't done it this year, but anyway, um, you it, they'll keep once they're cooked like that. They'll keep for a year, and a lot of people make them a year ahead of it. Yeah, you just put it in the cupboard. You know, it's all wrapped up, and and and. You know, there's a school of thought that says that they they mature and then they taste better after a year. But uh, you don't have to. But but that quite you can do that. So quite often I'll make two when I do them, and I'll have one for one year and then keep one the other one for the next year. But this year I didn't manage to do either. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's pretty much it. Look, <laughs> that's Christmas pudding. Yeah, I remember going to visit my, you know, my dad and all my cousins and my aunt. And I remember her, yes. you know, I was, I grew up in America, as you know. So yeah, yeah. I didn't really, you know, so you go see your European relatives and then, you know, my aunt pulls that thing out. I'm like, like, what the hell is this thing? But I have memories of eating it and it's incredible. It's not sweet and disgusting like a lot of, you know, grocery store cakes in America. It's actually Absolutely. very, it has like a very deep, like where I live, there's a lot of like molasses um, that is cooked with, and it has more of that flavor, like a deep dark. Yes, so it's very rich, deep flavor, and yeah, not not super sweet. Um, yeah, not not sort of sickly sweet, 
and uh, you know, and and then the lot, you know, the more the more it matures and the blacker it is, the more the more flavour it has. But quite often, young kids in England it, it don't tend to like it so much. It's definitely a bit of an acquired taste. I okay, think okay. people get a bit older, they 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 uh, come to like it a bit more. So you know, a lot of kids will turn their noses up at it, but uh, as they get older, they come to like it it's very it's really nice but uh, it's very rich very very rich you know <laughs> now now i watched some videos some history like youtube channels where they show how it was done back in the day and i in colonial you know colonial america with the with the english colonies and back in england in the 1700s the way you would make it you do everything you said but then you put it in a piece of cloth and it's it just has the shape of a ball and then yes. you tie the cloth shut and then you just submerge this cloth into the water and it just sits there boiling and it looks just like a they the way they refer to it is a cannonball that's spotted with all yeah. the raisins yeah that i think that that was the traditional way to do it is wrapped in a cloth but i but every time in you know, from whenever i remember it you do use a pudding bowl the sort of thing that you'll have in your kitchen for stirring things and then and then you put um you put um parchment on the top and then you wrap it again in in um foil because when and then steam it i you just i just use a regular big pot with a a steamer at the bottom and then just stick it in and and it's actually better if if the water stays away from it. I think if it, oh, I think okay. if they did dip, wrap it in the cloth, there were probably several layers of something underneath to keep it waterproof because you don't want the the water to get into it. And uh, it, it's it's easier to do that in a in a in a glass bowl. You know, yeah. You know, the way I've been thinking about it is it's it's much less like a cake and it's more kind of like a dumpling, like how you do chicken and dumplings or squirrel yes. and dumplings where I live. Cause it's, it's much more moist. It's not bready. It's more like yes. uh, sticky. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't, it's not like cake. Um, yeah. And certainly not like what passes as Christmas cake in America. That's, that's a, whole other thing but i do, do do the christmas pudding and most people have a you know have a little bit whether they're just being polite or not i don't know but you know <laughs> it goes down well the brandy butter goes down well anyway <laughs> and and the whole thing being on fire and the holly sprig the oh yeah you got to do that you've got to you've got to well, come into the room holding the platter with the with the pudding on it and flaming you know and and it, and it looks really impressive but i don't know if you've ever tried doing that but the the alcohol burns at a very low temperature so you're not going to burn yourself but and and then you just sh you just sort of shake the plate slightly and that'll keep the thing alight until all all the alcohol's burnt off yeah it was interesting hearing um, throughout history, because I guess this dish goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, like maybe to the 1400s I read in one place. Yeah, and they said that even in the... I think, and that I think it, was it eaten, probably... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, and, and they were saying what is really interesting that like in the 1700s, it was eaten both by the rich and the poor, which I thought was fascinating. Like the poor houses and the and the lords would all be eating this. Yes, yeah, definitely. And I think I think it sort of came to prominence along with the, the colonial period where access to the dry the dried fruit that's the sort of thing that, you know, you before colonial days was 
didn't exist really and then and then people started to to get the spices from the you know the the west indies or, or from from well from wherever and um and and it was a you know bearing in mind it was there were no fridges then so it was it was figuring out how to how to make stuff new stuff that that would keep well and and uh you know, and be a bit of a treat as well, because it was obviously, as you say, but you know, it's not that, that kind of stuff wasn't cheap. You know, it was the richer people totally. who could afford, and and sugar as well. When the when sugar started to be produced, and you know, then then that was that was a real big deal as well. I mean, prior to that, there was honey, obviously, because that was you made locally, but there were there weren't as many sweet things in it. You know. I don't have much to say because I haven't gotten far into the book, but I just started reading a book called Nathaniel's Nutmeg, and it was about a sailor, I think, in the 1600s and the voyages to the East Indies to start trading for nutmeg, which became like an absolute sensation. Yes, 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 yeah. Because the other thing was that obviously spices would would cover a multitude of sins if if food wasn't really fresh anymore you know or wasn't quite as fresh as it as it, as it initially was you bang some spices on it and nobody notices <laughs> right on yeah well hey yeah. also do you do you still cook the well we've come over to your house for a christmas eve feast yeah, and we had yeah. the we had the christmas goose is there some yeah. history is there anything you know about that or is that traditional or um, what's up with the christmas well, goose well i think it is. I, I think because it shows up in Dickens. There's a Christmas goose. Um, when when I was growing up, we didn't have goose very much. It's a lot more expensive than turkey, and I think everybody just ate turkey because you know I guess it was. But it was after I came over here. I never. I don't think I ever cooked a goose uh, when I was growing up. But, but I, I started experimenting a bit more, and that's when I started doing a goose. And then you know thought, oh, well, that's interesting. So, uh, and so, yeah, I've done that for many years with lots of different stuffings in and, and it looks really nice, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's fairly easy to cook. I, I, I definitely improved over the years and got the, got better, you know, it, you have to figure out quite how to do it so it doesn't dry out too much. It's, it's a lot, um, it, it's a lot oilier than, than turkey. So in a way it's easier to cook, but it's, it just needs a little you know, experimentation to get it just what you want. But yeah, but I decided this year I'm, you know, going to do, so we're having beef this year because I just decided time for a change. <laughs> but we will have Christmas crackers. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe one year I'll hunt you a Christmas goose. I've never oh, got wow. a goose before, but I could hunt one. Wouldn't that be neat? <laughs> it would, yes. I imagine that a, a wild, a truly wild goose, like any really wild animals, will be a lot leaner than than farmed, and therefore, you know, would 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 take a little more um, careful. Cook. Well, you'd need to know that it was wild and not farmed to to uh, figure out how to to cook it. Yeah, that would be fun. Totally, you'd try that. Um, is there, are there any final, um, kind of Christmas customs that I might be forgetting? Of course there are, there are tons everywhere, but just anything that was really fun when you were a kid or things that you thought were beautiful. It's been interesting learning how 
a lot of the Christ- Christmas customs from Europe have have roots in the older pagan religions, you know, with the holly oh, and stuff like that. No like question. Yule. Yeah. Holly, Yule logs, holly. You didn't, you didn't bring holly and ivy in before. I think it was holly before Christmas Eve. That was considered very um, unlucky, um, you know, to, but yeah, I mean, the, the pre-Christian um, winter celebrations were, was all around, you know, what grew, you know, and, and, um, decorating and lots of booze you know any anyhow any way to keep warm yeah customs but yeah a lot of a lot of what we um you know we think of as traditional christmas customs actually date to victorian times they're not all that old current ones you know but uh, yeah the cracker yeah. i saw that that cracker you're talking about that's a that's victorian yes i'm sure it is but far as we're concerned it's it's you know quintessential christmas all right well fran thank you for giving us this little tidbit um yeah i hope you have a good christmas and i hope you, you enjoy too. everything you're doing From English botany or colored figures of British plants written in 1902, the holly is known to everyone as the most beautiful of our evergreen trees, and its bright green shining leaves and brilliant scarlet berries are associated in the minds of most Englishmen with Christmas rejoicing and merrymaking, with joyous faces and warm hearts, and with the observances of our great Christmas festival in our churches and our homes. The holly was used in very ancient times for the decoration of churches and places of worship. The custom of placing evergreens in sacred places was common long before the time of Christianity, and in the ancient Jewish feasts, it was constantly observed. The holly seems first to have been introduced for religious purposes by the early Christians at Rome, and was probably used for decorating the churches at Christmas. Because the holly was used in the great festival of the Saturnalia, which occurred about that period, and it was the policy of the early fathers to assimilate as much as possible the festivals of the pagans and the Christians in outward forms, to avoid shocking the prejudices of newly made converts. Moreover, the holly was considered by the ancient Romans as an emblem of peace and friendship and was in perfection at that time of year when the Christian anniversary was celebrated of the coming of glad tidings of peace and goodwill to man. The origin of this pleasant custom is, however, a little uncertain, for it may be traced in several directions. The Druids were accustomed to decorate their dwelling places with branches of holly during the winter, and it is said that the sacred mistletoe was often associated with the holly in their religious observances. And from plant lore, legends, and lyrics, embracing the myths, traditions, superstitions, and folklore of the plant kingdom by Richard Folkard, written in 1884. There is an old English superstition that elves and fairies join the social gatherings at Christmas, and this led to branches being hung up in hall and bower, in order that the fays might hang in each leaf and cling on every bough during that sacred time when spirits have no power to harm. (music) 
So now we know a little bit about what a Christmas feast would have been like in England, say, a few centuries ago. And now we know a little bit about the symbolism of the holly sprig. And both of these are going to be major themes in the main meat of this Christmas special, which is going to be a Christmas reading. Now, this is a book I only just recently read, and uh, I, I was pretty blown away. This is definitely my favorite thing I've read all year, and maybe one of my favorite stories of all time. It's called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and certainly I've never heard of uh, this story in reference to Christmas. There are a few movie adaptations. I tried watching the most recent, and I stopped because uh, I couldn't handle the, the computer graphics and the whole kind of like fantasy kind of vibes. It, it just didn't it didn't feel like what I ended up reading, which is uh, much more mysterious and evocative. Now, this story was written anonymously over 700 years ago. It was written in the 1300s, most likely in England. And it's considered a poem, but it doesn't really read like a poem. It reads much more like a, like a, a folk tale or like a, a Grimm's fairy tale. Now, one thing I thought was kind of interesting that relates to the podcast is just kind of these mythological themes. And the Green Knight, to me, very much seems on par with the Green Man folklore in the UK, with Wild Man folklore of... Uh, of Europe, say in the, in the Grimm's fairy tales, there's a handful of wild men. And also what comes to mind is the ancient Celtic god, Cernunos, the god of hunting and the god of wild beasts. And in the archaeological record, Cernunos is depicted with a stag's horns, so with huge antlers, and he is surrounded by the animals of nature. And very much the vibe of the Green Knight to me is perhaps how Sir Nunos evolved over the thousand plus years since the pagan Celtic times into, I guess, the height of Christianity and medieval Christianity. Uh, how did Sir Nunos adapt? Now, if there are any hunters listening, after the scene that I read, the main character, Gawain, goes on this, this quest. And during his quest, he comes upon this kingdom in the forest. And the king of that kingdom, for three days, goes on these truly epic hunts to read. They are hound hunts. They're with bloodhounds. They're with greyhounds and with a breed called a harrier, which looks like a larger beagle, and with hundreds of huntsmen. And on the first day, it's a huge driven hunt for does and many of them. It's like a great hunting slaughter, really. The second day, they pursue this ferocious wild boar. And on the third day, they pursue a fox. Of course, this was written and takes place in a time well before guns. So these are these grand hunts on horseback with hounds, spears, swords, and if nothing else, those three hunting scenes are so epic to read that as a hunter, I can't recommend this legend more. So I'm going to be reading a translation by Simon Armitage because the original written 700 years ago is in what is considered Middle English. And this is news to me. 
Old English is actually what was written about a thousand years ago. So, um, which I did not know any of this. Uh, so Beowulf, which was written sometime in between the 800s and 1100s, um, Beowulf is written in Old English. And if you look at that, you can't understand anything. It almost looks like Scandinavian or something. Whereas uh, The Green Knight was written in Middle English, and you can understand a few words per sentence, but definitely would have no idea what's going on without a translation. So with these last few cold nights before Christmas, may you go and bundle up next to your fireplace, sit by your Christmas tree illuminated in lights, and enjoy this haunting, phantasmagorical Arthurian legend. Merry Christmas. It was Christmas at Camelot, King Arthur's court, where the great and the good of the land had gathered. All the righteous lords of the ranks of the round table quite properly carousing and reveling in pleasure. Time after time, in tournaments of joust, they had lunged at each other with leveled lances, then returned to the castle to carry on their caroling. For the feasting lasted a full fortnight and one day, with more food and drink than a fellow could dream of. The hubbub of their humor was heavenly to hear, pleasant dialogue by day and dancing after dusk, so the house and its hall were lit with happiness, and the lords and the ladies were luminous with joy. Such a coming together of the gracious and the glad, the most chivalrous and courteous knights known to Christendom, the most wonderful women to have walked in this world, the handsomest king to be crowned at court fine folk with their futures before them, there in that hall. Their highly honored king was happiest of all. No nobler knights had come within a castle's wall. With New Year so young, it still yawned and stretched. Helpings were doubled on the dais that day. And as king and company were coming to the hall, the choir in the chapel fell suddenly quiet. Then a chorus erupted from the courtiers and clerks. Noel, they cheered, then Noel, Noel, New Year gifts, the knights cried next as they pressed forwards to offer their presents, teasing with frivolous favors and forfeits, till those ladies who lost couldn't help but laugh, and the undefeated were far from forlorn. Their merrymaking rolled on in this manner until mealtime, when, washed and worthy, they went on to the table and were seated in order of honor, as was apt, with Guinevere in their gathering, gloriously framed at her place on the platform, pricelessly curtained by silk to each side, and canopied across with French weave and fine tapestry from the far east, studded with stones and stunning gems, pearls beyond pocket, pearls beyond purchase or price. But not one stone outshone the quartz of the queen's eyes. With hand on her heart, no one could argue otherwise. But Arthur would not eat until all were served. He brimmed with ebullience, being almost boyish in his love of life. And what he liked the least was to sit still watching the season slip by. 
His blood was busy and he buzzed with thoughts. And the matter which played on his mind at that moment was his pledge to take no portion from his plate on such a special day until a story was told, some far-fetched yarn or outrageous fable, the tallest of tales, yet one ringing with truth, like the action-packed epics of men at arms. Or till some chancer had challenged his chosen knight, dared him with a lance to lay life on the line, to stare death face to face and accept defeat, should fortune or fate smile more favorably on his foe. Within Camelot's castle, this was the custom, and at feast and festivals when the fellowship would meet. With features proud and fine, he stood there tall and straight, a king at Christmas time amid great merriment. And still he stands there, just being himself, chatting away, charmingly exchanging views. Good Sir Gawain is seated by Guinevere, and at Arthur's other side sits Agravain and Hardhand, both nephews of the king and notable knights. At the head sat Bishop Baldwin as Arthur's guest of honor, with Ewain, son of Urien, to eat beside him. And as soon as the nobles had sampled the spread, the stalwarts on the benches to both sides were served. The first course comes in to the fanfare and clamor of blasting trumpets hung with trembling banners, then pounding double drums and dining pipes, their sounds and wails of such warbled wildness that to hear and feel them made the heart float free. Flavorsome delicacies of flesh were fetched in, and the freshest of foods. So many, in fact, there was scarcely space to present the stews or to set the soups in the silver bowls on the cloth. Each guest received his share of bread or meat or broth, a dozen plates per pair, plus beer or wine or both. Now on the subject of supper, I'll say no more, as it's obvious to everyone that no one went without, because another sound, a new sound, suddenly drew near, which might signal the king to sample his supper, for barely had the horns finished blowing their breath, and with starters just spooned to the seated guests, a fearful form appeared, framed in the door, a mountain of a man, immeasurably high, a hulk of a human from head to hips so long and thick in his loins and his limbs, I should genuinely judge him to be a half-giant, or a massive man, the mightiest of mortals. But handsome too, like any horseman worth his horse, for despite the bulk and brawn of his body, his stomach and waist were slender and sleek. In fact, in all features he was finely formed, it seemed. Amazement seized their minds no soul had ever seen a knight of such a kind, entirely emerald green. And his gear and garments were green as well, a tight-fitting tunic tailored to his torso and a cloak to cover him, the cloth fully lined with smoothly shorn fur clearly showing and faced with all white ermine, as was the hood, worn shawled on his shoulders, shucked from his head. On his lower limbs, his leggings were also green, wrapped closely around his calves, and his sparkling spurs were green gold, strapped with strippy silk, and were set on his stockings, for this stranger was shoeless. 
In all vestments, he revealed himself veritably verdant. From his belt hooks and buckle to the baubles and gems arrayed so richly around his costume and adorning the saddle stitched onto silk. All the details of his dress are difficult to describe. Embroidered as it was with butterflies and birds, green beads emblazoned on a background of gold, all the horses tack, harness strap, hind strap, the eye of the bit, each alloy and enamel, and the stirrups he stood in were similarly tinted, and the same with the cantle and the skirts of the saddle, all glimmering and glinting with the greenest jewels, and the horse, every hair was green from hoof to mane, a steed of pure green stock, each snort and shudder strained the hand-stitched bridle, but his rider had him reined. The fellow in green was in fine fettle. The hair of his head was as green as his horse. Fine flowing locks which fanned across his back, plus a bushy green beard growing down to his breast. And his face hair, along with the hair of his head, was lopped in a line at elbow length, so half his arms were gowned in green growth, crimped at the collar like a king's cape. The mane of his mount was groomed to match, combed and knotted into curly cues, then tinseled with gold, tied and twisted, green over gold, green over gold. The fetlocks were finished in the same fashion, with bright green ribbon braided with beads, as was the tail, to its tippity tip. And a long tied thong, lacing it tight, was strung with gold bells, which resounded and shone. No waking man had witnessed such a warrior or weird warhorse, otherworldly, yet flesh and bone. A look of lightning flashed from somewhere in his soul. The force of that man's fist would be a thunderbolt. Yet he wore no helmet and no hauberk either. No armored apparel or plate was apparent, and he swung no sword nor sported any shield, but held in one hand a sprig of holly, of all the evergreens the greenest ever, and in the other hand held the mother of all axes, a cruel piece of kit, I kid you not. The head was an L in length at least, and forged in green steel with a gilt finish. The skull-busting blade was so stropped and buffed it could shear a man's scalp and shave him to boot. The handle which fitted that fiend's great fist was inlaid with iron end to end, with green pigment picking out impressive designs. From stock to neck, where it stopped with a knot, a lace was looped the length of the haft trimmed with tassels and tails of string, fastened firmly and placed by forced green buttons. And he kicks on, canters through the crowded hall towards the top table, not the least bit timid, cocksure of himself, sitting high in the saddle. And who, he bellows without breaking breath, is governor of this gaggle? I'll be glad to know. It's with him and him alone that I'll have my say. The green man steered his gaze deep into every eye, explored each person's face to probe for a reply. The guests looked on. They gaped and they gawked and were mute with amazement. What did it mean that human and horse could develop this hue, should grow to be grass green or greener still, like some green enamel emboldened by bright gold? 
Some stood and stared, then stepped a little closer, drawn near to the knight to know his next move. They'd seen some sights, but this was something special. A miracle, or magic, or so they imagined. Yet several of the lords were like statues in their seats, left speechless and rigid, not risking a response. The hall fell hushed as if all who were present had slipped into sleep or some trance-like state. No doubt, not all were stunned and stilled by dread, but duty-bound to hold their tongues until their sovereign could respond. Then the king acknowledged this curious occurrence, cordially addressing him, keeping his cool. A warm welcome, sir, this winter's night. My name is Arthur. I am head of this house. Won't you slide from that saddle and stay a while, and the business which brings you we shall learn of later. No, said the knight. It's not my nature to idle or a lack about this evening. But because your acclaim is so loudly chorused, and your castle and brotherhood are called the best, the strongest men to ever mount the saddle, the worthiest knights ever known to the world, both in competition and true combat, and since courtesy, so it's said, is championed here, I'm intrigued and attracted to your door at this time. Be assured by this hall and stem in my hand that I mean no menace, so expect no malice, for if I'd slogged here tonight to slay and slaughter, my helmet and hauberk wouldn't be at home, and my sword and spear would be here at my side, and more weapons of war, as I'm sure you're aware. I'm clothed for peace, not knitted out for conflict. But if you're half as honorable as I've heard folks say, you'll gracefully grant me this game, which I ask for by right. Then Arthur answered, Knight, most courteous you claim, a fair unarmored fight. We'll see you have the same. I'm spoiled for no scrap, I swear. Besides, the bodies on these benches are just bum-fluffed bairns. If I'd ridden to your castle rigged out for a ruck, these lightweight adolescents wouldn't last a minute. But it's Yuletide, a time of youthfulness, yes? So... At Christmas, in this court, I lay down a challenge. If a person here present within these premises is big or bold or red-blooded enough to strike me one stroke and be struck in return, I shall give him as a gift this gigantic cleaver, and the axe shall be his to handle how he likes. I'll kneel, bare my neck, and take the first knock. So who has the gall, the gumption, the guts, who will spring from his seat and snatch this weapon? I offer the axe. Who will have it as his own? I'll afford one free hit, from which I won't flinch, and promise that twelve months will pass in peace, then claim the duty I deserve in one year and one day. Does no one have the nerve to wager in this way? Flustered at first, now totally foxed, were the household and the lords, both the high-born and the low. Still stirruped, the knight swiveled round in his saddle, looking left and right, his red eyes rolling beneath the bristles of his bushy green brows, his beard swishing from side to side. When the court kept its counsel, he cleared his throat and stiffened his spine. Then he spoke his mind. So here is the house of Arthur, he scoffed, whose virtues reverberate across vast realms. Where's the fortitude and fearlessness you're so famed for? And the breathtaking bravery and the big mouth bragging. 
the towering reputation of the round table skittled and scuppered by a stranger. What a scandal. You flap and you flinch, and I've not even raised a finger. Then he laughed so loud that their leader saw red. Blood flowed to his fine-featured face, and he raged inside. His men were also hurt. Those words had pricked their pride. But born so brave at heart, the king stepped up one stride. Your request, he recounted, is quite insane, and folly finds the man who flirts with the fool. No warrior worth his salt would be worried by your words, so in heaven's good name, hand over the axe, and I'll happily fulfill the favor you ask. He strides to him swiftly and seizes his arm. The man-mountain dismounts in one mighty leap. Then Arthur grips the axe, grabs it by its haft, and takes it above him, intending to attack. Yet the stranger before him stands up straight, highest in the house by at least a head. Quite simply, he stands there stroking his beard, fiddling with his coat, his face without fear, about to be bludgeoned, but no more bothered than a guest at the table being given a goblet of wine. By Guinevere, Gawain, now to his king inclines, and says, I take my claim, this moment must be mine. Should you call me, courteous lord, said Gawain to his king, to rise from my seat and stand at your side, politely take leave of my place at the table, and quit without causing offense to my queen, then I shall come to your council before this great court. For I find it unfitting, as my fellow knights would, when a deed of such daring is dangled before us, that you take on this trial, tempted as you are. When brave, bold men are seated on these benches, men never matched in the metal of their minds, never beaten or bettered in the feel of battle. I am weakest of your warriors and feeblest of wit. Loss of my life would be grieved the least. Were I not your nephew, my life would mean nothing. To be born of your blood is my body's only claim. Such a foolish affair is unfitting for a king. So, being first to come forward, it shall fall to me. And if my proposal is improper, let no other person stand blame. The knighthood then unites, and each knight says the same. Their king can stand aside and give Gawain the game. So the sovereign instructed his knight to stand. Getting to his feet, he moved graciously forward and knelt before Arthur, taking hold of the axe. Letting go of it, Arthur then held up his hand to give young Gawain the blessing of God, and hope he finds firmness in heart and fist. Take care, young cousin, to catch him cleanly. Use full-blooded force, then you needn't fear the blow which he threatens to trade in return. Gawain, with the weapon, walked towards the warrior, and they stood face to face, not one man afraid. Then the green knight spoke, growled at Gawain. Before we compete, repeat what we've promised, and start by saying your name to me, sir, and tell me the truth so I can take it on trust. In good faith, it's Gawain, said the God-fearing knight. I heave this axe, and whatever happens after, in twelve months' time, I'll be struck in return with any weapon you wish, and by you, and you alone. The other answers, Well, by my living bones, I welcome you, Gawain to bring the blade head home. Gawain, said the Green Knight, by God, I'm glad the favor I've called for will fall from your fist. You've perfectly repeated the promise we've made and the terms of the contest are crystal clear. 
Except for one thing. You must solemnly swear that you'll seek me yourself, that you'll search me out to the ends of the earth to earn the same blow as you'll dole out today in this decorous hall. But where will you be? Where's your abode? You're a man of mystery, as God is my maker. Which court do you come from, and what are you called? There is knowledge I need, including your name. Then by wit, I'll work out the way to your door and keep to our contract so cross my heart. But enough at New Year. It needs nothing more, said the war man in green to worthy Gawain. I could tell you the truth once you've taken the blow. If you smite me smartly, I could spell out the facts of my house and home and my name, if it helps. Then you'll pay me a visit and vouch for our pact. Or, if I keep quiet, you might cope much better, loafing and lounging here, looking no further. But you stall. Now grasp that gruesome axe and show your striking style, he answered, since you ask, and touched the tempered steel. In the standing position he prepared to be struck, bent forward, revealing a flash of green flesh as he heaped his hair to the crown of his head, the nape of his neck now naked and ready. Gawain grips the axe and heaves it heavenwards, plants his left foot firmly on the floor in front, then swings it swiftly towards the bare skin. The cleanness of the strike cleaved the spinal cord and parted the fat and the flesh so far that the bright steel blade took a bite from the floor. The handsome head tumbles onto the earth, and the king's men kick it as it clatters past. Blood gutters brightly against his green gown, yet the man doesn't shudder or stagger or sink, but trudges towards them on those tree-trunk legs and rummages around, reaches at their feet and cops hold of his head and hoists it high and strides to his steed, snatches the bridle, steps into the stirrup and swings into his saddle, still gripping his head by a handful of hair. Then he settles himself in his seat with the ease of a man unmarked, never mind being minus his head. And then he wheeled about, his bloody neck still bled. His point was proved, the court was deadened now in dread. For that scalp and skull now swung from his fist. Towards the top table he turned the face, and it opened its eyelids, stared straight ahead, and spoke this speech which you'll hear for yourselves. Sir Gawain, be wise enough to keep your word, and faithfully follow me until I'm found, as you've vowed in this hall within hearing of these horsemen. You're charged with getting to the green chapel to reap what you've sown. You'll rightfully receive the justice you are due just as January dawns. Men know my name as the Green Chapel Knight, and even a fool couldn't fail to find me. So come, or be called a coward forever." With a tug of the reins he twisted around, and head still in hand galloped out of the hall, so the hooves brought fire from the flame in the flint. Which kingdom he came from they hadn't a clue, no more than they knew where he made for next. And then, well, with the green man gone, they laughed and grinned again. And yet such goings-on were magic to those men. <laughs>